0: Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. My name is Matthew. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Eastside, and it's really good to be with you today. Thank you for joining us and for worshiping with us. We're going to begin by—I'm just going to read one verse and then pray and then share some thoughts from this week and from our text uh, as we see how we might live in this moment that we uh, find ourselves in. So the first verse of the Gospel of Mark reads as such, The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ— the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are um, grateful that, as Micah just read to us, that the Lord reigns as king forever. God, some um, trust in horses and some in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord of hosts. We um, find ourselves today, God, needing your kingdom and your, your kingship. So help us, God, to see you rightly. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, so it's been uh, an exhausting week after an exhausting year. Like many of you, I watched the news on Wednesday. I was actually in this room standing over here with Micah and Jenny. We were all wearing masks six feet apart. Um, but we're horrified as we watched the news on my laptop uh, to see a violent mob breach one of the most sacred symbols of liberty and law and, and stability in our land, and not just in our land, but also in the world. And since, since then, I've tried to stay largely quiet. Um, haven't tried to say a whole lot on social media. i trying to do that Bible thing of, like, uh, be quick to listen and slow to speak because I tend to go the other way a lot. And I, I do feel like there's something that needs to be said in response to what happened this week, and I want to be faithful in it um, and not reactive. Um, this feels like a really important moment for our country and for the American church and therefore for our community. And I've just been hoping and asking God that he would help me to be right and faithful in how, how I respond. I want to begin by just saying three things to sort of lay some groundwork for us. First of all, um, I know that some of you are tired of us talking about politics in church. And I just want to say, so am I. Like I, I don't like constantly talking about things that have a political nature to them. I would love for us to not talk about these things. I hope that maybe in the future, I won't feel that we need to talk about these things as much. And yet I do feel convinced and convicted as a pastor, as do the leaders of our church, both East and West, that um, for us to be faithful witnesses in context, we have to be willing to speak to the political realities that are swirling around us. There are times in church history where um, the church sort of wakes up to her voice and what she needs to say. And that's been, that's been Trinity's story this year. We've spoken more directly about things that have a political nature than I think at any time in our history. And this hasn't felt reactive to us. It's felt responsible to us. Um, there are just some times in history where you wake up and yet there are also a remnant of churches that, have, that did not need to be roused or woken up because they have held the banner of prophetic witness for, for centuries now. In our land, it's the African-American church that have never struggled to walk that line of theological orthodoxy and contextual prophetic witness. And we have a lot to learn from the African-American church in our country, in our city. But churches like us, I feel like, are just now waking up to this idea that, we have, that there are things that need to be said that we can't be faithful Christians and not say them. The second thing, um, I know that some of you might be bothered or even more offended by what I say today, and I just want to tell you it's not my desire at all to offend anyone. I'm not here to exact revenge or to to punish or to get a pound of flesh. There's nothing about this that has that spirit to it for me. Um, Some of what I say might feel unnecessary to you. I obviously feel like it is necessary. It's why I'm saying it. but if you for in any way, like feel targeted or like unfairly represented in this, I, I just want you to please like hear my heart. Would you please tell me we're family, we're kin, and we can say things that bother and hurt one another, and then we can move towards each other and we can become wiser from listening to one another and move together stronger afterwards. So please, if there's anything that comes out of today that actually personally hurts you, would you please do me the privilege of letting me know? reaching out to me so that we can make peace. I believe the Spirit is able to make peace over things that feel divisive. And then thirdly, um, this will feel undoubtedly to some of you, what I say today, as too little, too late. I've tried for three years now as the pastor on the east side to sort of thread a needle of speaking about injustice without speaking to the energies behind that injustice. And I did this largely because of fear. Um, afraid of being misunderstood, um, but I think, more honestly, afraid of, of people leaving. And um, I've struggled to find the the balance between, like, wisdom and restraint versus just, like, self-censoring that's motivated by fear and um, I will simultaneously, and you all know this if you listen to me teach, I will praise prophetic voices in our church, people like Dr. King and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, A.W. Tozer, Howard Thurman. Uh, Esau McCauley is a modern-day example of people who I love to hold up and quote, but I myself tend to hide behind generalities and behind quotations rather than speaking clearly and directly. And in this way, this is one of the ways that I am complicit in the sickness that is present in our society and in the church. My silence. And though I have no desire to offend or hurt anyone, I am more afraid, I think, of being silent than I am of hurting someone. It should not have taken the events of January 6th to get me to begin to say some of the things I'll say today. My willingness to name these things is wrong, and I'm sorry. And I pray that you'll forgive me. What happened in the Capitol on Wednesday was egregious, atrocious, it was horrible. It was not the result of a few radicalized people. It was the consequence of years of stoking the fires of victimhood and white nationalism and racism and hate and violence. And we condemn the actions on Wednesday. Of course we do. But even more so, we condemn the rhetoric, the energy that actually spun it into being. What happened on Wednesday was, as Chris, our pastor on the West Side, said this week, the ugly and demonic manifestation of the cult of personality. Our current president and his allies have fanned the flames of discontent recklessly and carelessly whipped a group of folks into a frenzy and then turned them loose on our system of government. What was on display on the 6th is fully and totally unacceptable in a free society. Peaceful protest is one of the gifts of our nation. It's one of the great things about our constitution. It's one of the blessings that we have. Many of us this summer actually engaged in peaceful protest. But protest can cross a line into violence. It happened on Wednesday. It happened this summer too. I wasn't clear enough then. We condemn violence. The way of Jesus is not the way of the sword. The way of Jesus is not the way of burning and looting. The way of Jesus is not the way of destroying and attacking. You cannot read the Gospels or the New Testament and come to the conclusion that Christians are meant to bear arms against one another. We condemn these things. Now, let me say something else that's going to make others of you uncomfortable. Um... Behind the actions of those who broke into the Capitol on Wednesday and vandalized offices and threatened the lives of people and behind those actions and behind the actions of those who burned buildings this summer is the same emotion. Fear. The fear that there's no other response left but this. And um, it's, it's a real fear. It's not necessarily a fear grounded in reality, but it feels real. I have many friends and family members who lean right. They do not they do not condone the actions on Wednesday, and yet they do present day live in very real fear of our political future as a country. Now, we all know that that there's no place for fear in the heart of a Christian. Do not fear is the most often repeated command in the Bible. And yet, all of us also know what fear feels like. And we know the crazy and stupid things that it makes us do. We know that fear actually has a way of getting us to do things that we would never in other circumstances in our right mind do. Now, I don't say any of this to soften or to smooth over or to sort of say, oh, well, shrug your shoulders. It wasn't that bad. These guys, they were just afraid. We got to understand... Now, I say these things because there should be consequences. People need to pay for what they did. There should be consequences. But I say these things because Christians are simply not allowed to have an us versus them mentality where they're the bad guys and we're the good guys, where we get to stand on the sidelines and boo when we ourselves are not also conflicted with the same exact set of issues where we struggle with fear. Again, not to try to make equals, not to try to fall, force false moral equivalencies. That's not my desire at all in this. It's just to say that we as Christians must be willing to move towards the other always and seek to understand it is the way of Jesus. But behind the fear that was on display on Wednesday is someone and something that has been stirring and galvanizing and energizing fear in our country and in our land for tens of millions of people for far too long, who has tapped into and validated and celebrated some of the darkest aspects of our country, white nationalism, racism, greed, hyper-individualism, and violence. And the truth is, is that for political purposes, many on the right, have been willing to go along with these things that they knew were wrong because they were more afraid of losing power. As Chris said in the statement he released this week, I believe that Trumpism, which we define Trumpism as the unabashed celebration of our current president and the affirmation of his tactics and rhetoric, Trumpism is a form of idolatry. It is not conservatism. It is not republicanism. It is a form of idolatry because it heightens and elevates an individual in his ways to win at any cost, to dehumanize at any cost. It is dangerous, and it is something, as Beth Moore has said to the church now for months, something that every Christian, Republican, Democrat, Independent, should move back from, should have nothing to do with. The syncretism on display on Wednesday, the blending, and this isn't just on Wednesday. We've seen it all year. We've seen it for years now. The syncretism between Bible verses and crosses and Jesus saves along with Trump flags and nationalistic, white nationalistic, Confederate flags. These things do not fit together. They do not work together. They don't have anything to do with one another. And all Christians must be willing to say, that is not, that's not okay, Now, where does our text come to us? (laughs) It comes in this moment right now. Mark says, the beginning of his gospel, a word. And this word frames the whole gospel, and it frames our whole life as Christians, and it frames this moment that we're living in right now. And the word is this, euangelion. He says, this is the beginning of the euangelion, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He frames his entire narrative And this word, euangelion, and we're going to spend the rest of the year in Mark's gospel, like in and out, like we'll go other places too. But dealing with this word, what does it mean that Mark is saying this is a euangelion? And what we need to understand, what you and I must understand is that it is a word that had a particular understanding and context in the first century. And that context was political, wholly political and nothing but. It spoke to a political reality because it was used exclusively as a political word. It was used when a Caesar won a military victory or threw a big celebration in honor of how wonderful he was. That's what a euangelion was. It was a technical term for imperial proclamation. Just like the phrase, state of the union, means something to you and me today that is really wholly political. It speaks to the pageantry and so on of American political life. Euangelion to the first century readers and writers meant one thing, it was a political declaration of victory. And in the Roman context, the euangelion was simply this, Caesar is Lord, and it had many ways of being manifested. Caesar is Lord, therefore we celebrate his birth as a god. Caesar is Lord, therefore we celebrate his military might in Germania, or whatever it is. There was a Roman inscription that was recently discovered from uh, that, that was inscribed a few years before Jesus' birth, it heralded, quote, the euangelion of the empire. And this is what it says. Augustus was sent as savior. The birthday of the son of God, Caesar, was the beginning of the euangelion, the good news. This is the Roman gospel that was forced on the entire Roman world at the point of a spear. Augustus, the son of God, savior. Every coin in every pocket in the Roman world, in Palestine and beyond, every coin had this inscription, Caesar Augustus son of God, high priest, and against this backdrop of imperialism, against this backdrop of nationalism, the opening lines of the earliest Christian gospel bristle with subtly subversive agenda. The beginning of the Evangelion of Jesus Christ, that is the anointed one, the king. The beginning of the Evangelion of Caesar Jesus, the son of God. Mark is saying at the very beginning, there is a king, and this king has supplanted all other kings, and no other kings belong on the stage anymore. They don't fit. They don't belong here anymore. There is only one king in the world. The early Christians had um, a way of describing or depicting each gospel. They had an image, which is called the tetramorph. It's essentially a four-headed creature, and it's on the screen for you to look at right now. It pulls from images from the book of Ezekiel, Um, And each gospel is given a different figure, a creature. Matthew is represented by the man, Luke by the bull, John by the eagle, and all for good reasons, which we'll talk about maybe some other time. But Mark is depicted as the lion. And he's depicted as the lion simply because the Jesus of Mark's gospel does not spend time in a womb, surrounded by shepherds, being sung to by angels, slowly growing up in a genealogy from a long life. He just suddenly, the curtain lifts and he's on the scene. There he is, a man in the wilderness who eats locusts and bugs and and honey, points his finger to the anointed one. And Jesus is here as a king sweeping across the landscape of the Judean wilderness, 2,500 miles from the seat of the Caesar in Rome, The true Caesar, the true king, was here, and he appeared to the poor. And this would have been particularly comforting, Mark's words, to his audience, because his audience was the Roman church, largely, and they were not living during the time of relative religious tolerance that was present during Augustus or Tiberius. They were living under the fanatical and terrifying monstrous reign of Nero, who just in the previous decade had beheaded Paul and crucified St. Peter upside down for spectacle. And Mark sends a word to them, the kingdom that you are fearing right now does not matter. It does not win. It is not final. It doesn't have the last word. The heart of the gospel is the declaration that something has happened that is far-reaching impact that is going to shape and change the whole world. It's about regime change. And how comforting would that have been to the first century Christians who, while reading it, knew that Jerusalem at that moment was actually being ground down to the final stone, that the temple was, was to have no more sacrifices ever practiced in it, that the, the last vestiges of the kingdom of David was now ground into the dust and the final stones of the wall were knocked over. The kingdom was gone. And Mark says, no, this is the gospel of the true king, the son of God. God is taking over. This is why Christians cannot be nationalists. We can be patriotic, but we cannot find primary allegiance or identity in a state. We cannot believe in the superiority of a state over other states because we understand that there is one kingdom that actually has dominion. And all other fall woefully short. Part of Mark's intention in framing his biography this way, that is politically, is he wanted to give his readers and he wanted to give the church a political perspective to his readers. He wanted to maybe, in a sense, give marching orders. The church has always been political. The thing that we say, we come together and preach to one another, the gospel. The gospel is, at its inception, a political declaration. The church has always been political, a counterclaim about the ultimate truth that is higher and greater than the truths that are immediately in front of our faces. And so what I want to give to you today, friends, Christians, brothers and sisters, is two responses for us. There's more than this, but this is what I got time for. This is a time for prophetic witness, and this is a time for prayer, and not in that order. The church needs to take a prophetic voice. The church needs to be willing to say true things. The church needs to be willing to say things that might be misunderstood. But here's the thing about prophetic witness. Prophecy in the the Bible is not like fortune-telling. It's not predictive. It's not saying this is what's going to happen in 100 years. Prophecy primarily is speaking the truth to the moment that you are in, but it's speaking God's truth to the moment that you're in. Which means that if the things that I'm saying prophetically are always landing softly on one side of the aisle and always riling up the other side of the aisle, that's not prophecy. That's punditry. Prophecy is the truth of God which cuts against the grain in both directions. An example of prophetic witness comes from the 24-year-old, 24-year-old Martin Luther King. (laughs) 24. He was in his father's pulpit over the summer of 1953, and he said these words, and how timely are they? One cannot worship the false god of nationalism and the god of Christianity at the same time. The two are incompatible. And all the dialectics of the logicians cannot make them exist together. We must choose whom we will serve. Will we continue to serve the false god that places absolute national sovereignty first? Or will we serve the god in whom there is no east nor west? Will we continue to serve the false god of imperialistic greed? Or will we serve the god who makes love the key which unlocks the door of peace and security? Will we continue to serve the false god of racial prejudice? Or will we serve the god who makes of one blood all men to dwell upon the face of the earth? He goes on to say, Today we need, imagine the 24 year old Dr. King saying this to you today we need prophetic voices willing to cry out against the false god of nationalism. I realize, he says, that such a venture might bring about the possibility of being called many undesirable names. <laughs> obviously, but speak we must if we are to acknowledge the sovereignty of God against the claims of the false God of nationalism. We must affirm the supremacy of the eternal God of the universe, the father of all mankind. This is the God we must worship if we are to sail through the tempestuous seas of confusion to the harbor of peace. Larry Hurtado from the University of Edinburgh noted the prophetic witness immediately present in the church. Tim Keller recently synthesized these down to five things. This was five things that were distinct about the early church that made them stand apart from all other realities, all other national, imperial, political realities around them. Five things that were distinct about them. The first, the early church was multiracial. They celebrated and honored all races and peoples as equals. The second, the early church was socioeconomically diverse and it, saw its, it understood that those who had resources in it were required and obligated to care for the poor in their churches and in their cities. So it was a place of, of, of economic equality while those who came into it were actually diverse. Third, the early church was staunchly pro-life. It organized its efforts to actively resist abortion, which was not practiced that often then, but infanticide was the the practice of actually taking unwanted babies and throwing them into the trash heap or into the the sewers. And Christians would go out and find these babies and bring them home and raise them. Christians were the first ones to speak out against the gladiatorial games and to refuse to participate in any sort of uh, public displays of violence. Fourth, the early church was a sexual counterculture. They refused to practice in the sexually promiscuous customs of the day, which expected men of a higher class to have sex with those who were lower on the social ladder. Women, uh, prostitutes, slaves, children. The church was shockingly egalitarian. It actually required the same fidelity from both women and men at the same time and said that actually the only container powerful or big enough or large enough, great enough to hold the power of sexual intimacy was sex between a man and a woman, a covenant. Church was always saying this. Fifthly, the church was staunchly nonviolent, opposed to all forms of violence, and refused to serve in the military, refused to take up arms against others, but practiced instead forgiveness and charity towards all, even their enemies. Now, what's interesting about those five things is that if you take them, you take the first two and you plot them on a political perspective, multi-ethnicity and the celebration of multiracial, so on, and then socioeconomic diversity and caring for the poor, that obviously is going to lean more left. That's just going to plot itself more on a political spectrum on the left. The second two, uh, pro-life and, 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 and sexual uh, celibacy or, or, or purity, these things are going to fall more on the, on the right and then the fifth one, nonviolence, is something that basically no one is practicing today politically. No one is actually saying the things that the early church was saying about how important it is for us not to be a violent people. The pressure in our society is if you lean left to prioritize the first two and sort of push the other two into the corner. And if you pro- lean right to do the same thing in the other direction. And Christians must be willing to speak with a prophetic voice powerful in all, powerfully in all directions. This is not about picking one party and saying this is the way. This is about being a person of a kingdom whose ethic is larger, deeper, more diverse than what either party is going to be able to offer. We must be willing, Christians, you and I must be willing to lift up a prophetic voice in this moment. And just to be clear, that does not mean going on social media and picking fights with people. This is actually being willing in truth in a spirit of humility and mercy to seek to move towards another and to offer a word. And then finally, the only way we're going to be able to do this is if we're a people of prayer. We are, as a society, far too quick to speak and far too slow to listen. And the one person that we are least likely to listen to is God. And you and I will never have the truth of God, the prophetic word of God, to give to another person if we don't know the heart of God. And we won't know it if we don't spend time with him. This is why we gather every Tuesday and Thursday morning on Zoom. One day again, we'll gather in this building, maybe this year. Every Tuesday and Thursday morning, we gather pastors and people in our church, and we sit in a Zoom circle, and we pray for our country, pray for one another. We pray for our church. You can come too. I want you to be there with me. There's the only way we're going to figure out how to navigate this season is to pray. And we have to remember that when we are invited to pray, we are invited to do nothing less than to speak directly to the only one who can actually do anything about this. Our quick little jabs, our little things that we offer, these things are not going to really fix the solution. We need rescue. We need the church to be a source of healing and that healing will come through the presence of God and the spirit in the church. We need to be a people of prayer we need to not only pray for those with whom we agree, we must be people who are praying for those with whom we disagree. You need to be praying for the other side, praying for mercy, for blessing. The way of Jesus is a way that is always saying, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You've heard it said of old, That if you murder, you are liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with your brother, you are liable to judgment. If you say to your brother, you fool, you are liable to judgment. Jesus is always raising the stakes and saying, the way of my kingdom is not like the ways of this world. We don't get to be partisan. We don't get to be us versus them. We are called to be people of peace and healing who pray for all people. And so would you join me in this moment as we close in praying? we come and take communion Jesus we are so grateful that swirling over the chaos of this moment but swirling over the chaos of every moment in history and just to think about what that means that there is a solid true king that you God reign and um Lord, we don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. We need your help. We need your power. We need your peace. Let your spirit come on our church, Lord. Let us be an instrument of peace, an instrument of healing, an instrument of life and love. God, heal our nation. Bring peace in our land, Lord. We need you, Lord. Pray together these words, asking for the kingdom to come. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who've trespassed against us, and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Uh, You are loved. We'll see you in a few minutes. Please join us outside. Um, Grace and peace to you.